Well, with that, Acts chapter 1, and we are going to read together verses 12 through 26. And because this is the word of the living God and you are the people of God, this is the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand to your feet to hear from the God who still speaks in his word. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, and Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit of God these words. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, filled of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Recently, Tana and I sat down to watch a movie, which we don't do often. I enjoy watching movies, um, depending on the movie, and I enjoy watching movies with my family, but Tan and I sat down to watch a movie, and the plot of the movie led up to a moment of tension in which the hero was moving into a dangerous situation. This is nothing unique to the movie I was watching. One of the characters at this moment of tension posed the common, the all-too-common question, what's the plan? Ask the hero this, the antagonist, or the, the protagonist, Sorry. The hero responded with almost careless abandon. What? There is no plan. There is no plan. Such a hero helps to establish tension, right, in a story like this? These heroes establish suspense regarding the outcome of events. In fact, if you're watching, you're observing the story on the screen, or perhaps you're reading a book, and a similar plot takes place. When this happens, it leaves us wondering, will the hero succeed? Now, we know better. 
we know better. Usually the hero does succeed in the movies or in the stories. Not always, but usually this is the case. But this helps to build suspense and causes us again to question what we know to be true. Will the hero actually succeed in this case? Well, this is not the case in the biblical story. In fact, it's nothing like the biblical story in this respect. God is never reacting or haphazardly working to succeed, right? If you were to ask God, well, what's the, what's the plan? God would not respond, there is no plan. He may respond, that's for me to know and you to find out over time. In fact, he does something quite like this through Jesus in his interactions with the apostles in chapter one of the book of, the book of Acts. What we find in scripture is that everything that takes place takes place according to the comprehensive and meticulous plan of God. Everything. There's not a modicum of existence. Not a jot, not a tittle, to use biblical language, that falls outside of the scope of God's comprehensive sovereignty. And we find that actually in the book of Acts. We find it here in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. We find that this sovereign plan of God even includes what might appear ostensibly to be a challenge or a threat to God's plan, as we're going to work through the text together. So this morning, what I'd like to do is begin with a thesis statement that grows out of Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And here's the thesis statement. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It's a pretty simple statement, I think. Here's the statement. At a high level, nothing can derail the comprehensively sovereign plan of God. That's the statement. Nothing can derail the comprehensively sovereign plan of God. And for the rest of our time together, what we're going to do is we are going to walk through this text using three subheadings, okay? Three headings that serve to demonstrate this thesis together. So if you're taking notes, here they are. First, we're going to look together at what I've called the anticipation of the disciples. And this really does just kind of set the context. The anticipation of the disciples in verses 12 through 14. Secondly, we will unpack together, in addition to the anticipation of the disciples, the apostasy of Judas. The apostasy of Judas in verses 15 to 20. And this is where we're going to spend likely the majority of our time. I need to stand right here, don't I? I almost did it just now. So first, the anticipation of the disciples. Second, the apostasy of Judas. And then finally... We are going to examine the appointment of Matthias. The appointment of Matthias in verses 21 to 26. Well, let's begin with the anticipation of the disciples. Look with me, if you would, at verses 12, 13, and 14. Bibles are opened, and we're looking down at the text. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, which, by the way, is approximately three-fourths of a mile or so, 2,000 cubits, according to Jewish tradition, which would have been about three-fourths of a mile, a Sabbath day journey. Verse 13, and when they had returned, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, Son of James, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Last week, if you were with us, as we began to unpack the book of Acts, we learned that these disciples of Christ, otherwise known, by the way, as apostles, these disciples of Jesus Christ met with Jesus on a mountain outside of Jerusalem after his resurrection. And this would have been one of many post-resurrection appearances of the Lord. We learn this from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are many different appearances after the Lord's resurrection that he granted to his disciples and others. And here he meets with all of his apostles together, that is the remaining 11. 
And we are to know this. We are to know at this point that there are only 11 apostles left because one of the apostles became apostate. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Luke wants us to know this as he's carried along by the Spirit of God to such a degree that he even lists the 11 apostles that are remaining. This is important for the Spirit of God working through Luke. And there on the mountain, again, this was last week, there on the mountain as the apostles met with Jesus, or Jesus rather met with the apostles, Jesus instructed them and commanded them through the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem, which was right up the road, and to stay there, to stay there and wait for the promise from the Father, which he said you will receive from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the what? Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And so we find in our text, and we're going to get there in Acts chapter 2, this is all building to Pentecost. And then from Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the book of Acts really does begin. Then Luke starts to run by God's grace. And we'll see much that happens in the early church. But as we're building to Pentecost, and as we're preparing for Pentecost, what we find in our text is that the apostles obeyed the instruction of the Lord. The Lord said, go back to Jerusalem and stay there and wait. And so they did. That's what they're doing. They're waiting. Now notice what the disciples, or the apostles, were doing as they waited. In verse 14, these all... That is, all the apostles. These all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A number of things we could say about this. We are going to come across a statement like this multiple times. This is what the early Christians are doing. They're gathering together and they're praying in unity. Moreover, as we're going to see in just a moment, they're gathering together to hear from the apostles teach the word of God, which is precisely what we find in this text. So they're gathered here for the purpose of prayer and they're gathered for the purpose of hearing, as we find out, Peter stand in the midst of the gathering and open up God's word and share from Psalm 69, Psalm 109, what God had instructed of his people. And how all of these things were being fulfilled according to God's comprehensive sovereignty. By the way, Luke loves, he loves this description in the ESV, uh, the translators chose, with one accord. They were all devoting themselves with one accord. In other words, they're all doing it together. And by the way, Christians aren't the only ones who are operating with one accord in the book of Acts. Non-Christians also are operating with one accord in opposition to the church. So Luke uses this same term to describe both the church and those who are outside of the church operating with one accord. And there's some discussion, I wanted to mention this, there's some discussion in verse 14 about the identity of these women. Who are these women that Luke mentions here in Acts 1.14? Mary, the mother of Jesus, is clear enough, right? Luke mentions her by name. But who are the other women? Some think they are the wives of the apostles. In fact, we have, we have an ancient manuscript um, that makes this really clear. It, it, adds, it adds that they were gathered together with the women and their children, indicating, of course, these were family units that were gathered together for a time of worship. That may be the case, But I tend to think that this is a reference back to the conclusion of volume one of Luke's work. You remember this? The gospel according, the gospel according to Luke. (laughs) You're being so patient. The gospel according to Luke is volume one. The book of Acts is volume two. Luke is expecting and anticipating that you've read the gospel according to Luke. And so when he refers to broadly and ambiguously the women, in addition to Mary, the mother of Jesus, I think what he's doing is he's referencing Luke 23, 55 and Luke 24, verse 10, where he tells us that women were gathered together, of course, surrounding the resurrection, and these women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, 
Mary, the mother of James, and then even there he says, and other women. You need to know this because from the very beginning, the followers of Jesus Christ consisted of both males and females. This has always been the case. It's always been the case. So, as the roughly 120 people, verse 15 tells us, including apostles, male and female disciples, are waiting, as we mentioned a moment ago, they are devoting themselves to consistent and harmonious prayer. I had a question as I read this, oh, I don't know, a week week or so ago. What are they praying for? And the text doesn't explicitly tell us But again, I think this is where it's helpful to read Acts as volume two, to Luke's gospel according to Luke as volume one. I would speculate, and and again, highlight speculate there. I would speculate that Luke 11 informed this time of prayer. What are they praying for? Well, in Luke 11, Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. In fact, this is where you find the Lord's prayer in addition to Matthew 6. Um, but in Luke 11, you find the Lord's Prayer. And then Luke, Luke 11, verses 11 through 13 says this. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Verse 12. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Verse 13, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give, now Matthew, Matthew's gospel says good gifts. How much more, Matthew says in Matthew 7 actually, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? But Luke, Luke says something different anticipating Pentecost. Luke says, if you then who are evil, Luke eleven thirteen, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think the church was praying for the Spirit. God's people were gathered as they waited in Jerusalem, men and women, all disciples, including apostles, about 120 people, They were gathered together for a time of prayer and teaching, as we're going to see in just a moment, but they were asking the Lord, I think, I think, in obedience to Luke 11 for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, God will grant in the very next chapter. Cannot wait to get there, but it will not be today. And as I mentioned a moment ago, in addition to prayer, the church was devoted to hearing the apostles teach. And we find this beginning in verse 15, And carrying on through, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, and then we find Peter explaining texts of Scripture. And we find this, brothers and sisters, we find this consistently throughout the book of Acts. What what is the church doing? What is the early church doing? Well, they're meeting together, and when they meet together, they're praying and they're hearing God's word taught. That's consistent throughout Acts. In fact, the book of Acts really is the story of the spread of the word of God, empowered by the prayers of God's people, led by the spirit of God. That's really the story of Acts in a nutshell. That's why when we gather together as a church, it's important that we we pray to our Father in heaven. There are a number of ways of doing this, you know, different forms this can take. This can take place in the form of a maybe more traditional prayer meeting, a group of people gather together during an evening time or something. We do this, for example, once a month, Sunday evening time together, fourth Sunday evening service. We devote largely to a time of just praying together. That's one way we can do this. We do this often Lord's Day morning as we gather together various times for prayer. As God's people have gathered, we, we call out to our Father in prayer. Additionally, we gather together for the hearing of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. Why do we do this? Because the church has always done this. That's what it means to be the church. Any group of people worthy of the name, church, must gather together consistently for prayer and the teaching of Scripture. We're going to revisit all of this in Acts chapter 2, one of the challenges of preaching through a book of the Bible. 
for those of you who may be interested. One of the challenges is not saying everything the first couple of weeks. We'll recover some of this even and uncover some of this all the more as we move through the text together in the book of Acts. Well, in addition to the anticipation of the disciples, so that's, that's the context. They are anticipating the promise of the Holy Spirit as they gather together for a time of prayer and teaching in Scripture. And they're doing this, they're doing this in obedience to the instruction of Jesus. So going back to our thesis... From beginning to end in our text, we find that it is God through Christ that is actually in control. And we'll see that more clearly in this next heading. So in addition to the anticipation of the disciples, we find the apostasy of Judas. And this is where God's sovereignty becomes apparent. The apostasy of Judas. Notice what Peter says in verses 16 and 17. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Notice further, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. So much here. By the mouth of David concerning Judas. Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he, that is Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. In other words, he departed from us. He was once a part of this and then he departed, apostatized from from our group, from followers of Christ, from the apostolic office. Now I want you to notice immediately and fundamentally who speaks scripture according to Luke here in Acts chapter 1. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who speaks Scripture. In fact, when David wrote the Psalms from which Peter is going to quote in a moment, I mentioned those a moment ago, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. When he wrote those Psalms, it was fundamentally the Holy Spirit who was speaking through David. David was a mouthpiece. He was not the author. And this really is, I think, different than the way many view, even Christians view, the text of Scripture. We do pay some lip service to Scripture being the Word of God, but when we quote Scripture, we will often attribute authorship primarily to the human author. When in fact what you find in Scripture is primary authorship or fundamental authorship is ascribed to God ascribed to the Spirit. And then it just so happens that the Spirit uses human agents, personalities and styles and so forth to speak Scripture. In this case, he used David as a human instrument. And this really is integral to Christianity, church family. That is the belief that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. You can have a different opinion on this, absolutely. You can say, of course, that this is just a compilation of, of a group of human authors, ancient human authors, and, and they got it right sometimes, they got it wrong sometimes. You can have that view, but you need to know that it is fundamentally at odds with historic Christianity. Right. To historically and, and biblically be a follower of Jesus Christ, it means a number of things, but it means, it means at least this concerning your view of the word of God, that the Bible is fundamentally authored by God the Holy Spirit. And this is why, by the way, in the text, scripture, according to Peter's words, scripture had to be fulfilled. Verse 16. Why did it have to be fulfilled? Because if it wasn't fulfilled, then God would be a liar. If this is authored by God, and God is true, he is truth, then everything he says is true and trustworthy. And so when God speaks in Scripture, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that's precisely... What Peter says, in fact, later in one of his epistles, he'll quote 
that text precisely from Isaiah concerning the word of God. Now look with me at verses 18 and 19. So again, we're talking about the apostasy of Judas and how this fits underneath the comprehensive sovereignty of God as revealed in Scripture. So verses 18 and 19, where Luke apparently adds a parenthetical comment explaining the circumstances surrounding Judas. This is where, if you've got a young boy and you want to make and help him understand that the Word of God is actually quite interesting, you can read him this text. I heard a pastor say, you know, even this past week, um, that he likes from time to time when he's asked to write down his, his life verse. He writes down this verse. I really wanted to start doing it when I heard him say that, but I thought, I better not. Better not. So verses 18 and 19, here's what, here's what Luke adds as a parenthetical comment. I don't think Peter said this. Luke adds it to explain Now this man, that is Judas, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. He's condensing a lot of information here. It's called telescoping, by the way, biblical interpretation. So this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Some translations read all of his intestines. The Greek word here, it's just a fun word, is splankna. You hear it, don't you? You don't have to know ancient Koine Greek to know that's, that's not good. You don't want to lose your splankna. So here Judas loses his splankna, verse 19 and it became known, sorry, you've got to have fun doing this. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called, in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. Acts 1.18 is quite gruesome, isn't it? And there are, there are a series of passages like this throughout Scripture. Uh, God's Word doesn't avoid gory details, nor, nor does the Spirit of God include gory details just to be gory, but to demonstrate something. And here, what this demonstrates is God's judgment against his apostle who had apostatized, betrayed the Lord Jesus. And as a result, as we, as we learn from Matthew 27, again, we're there are a couple of passages that speak to Judas' death. Matthew 27 says Judas went out and hanged himself. But, but perhaps, perhaps, what ended up happening is at some point after he hanged himself, he didn't want to touch a corpse and thereby become unclean. But his body eventually fell. And when his body fell, the swelling, of course, caused his body to burst open. I tend to think that's probably what's happening here. This is being described, these gory details are being described to demonstrate the severity of God's judgment seen vividly in in the death and even subsequent judgment of God upon Judas. Now remember, the Spirit through Luke is showing us that this was all a part of God's comprehensively sovereign plan. Don't miss that. It's all a part of this. This was all a part of God's comprehensively sovereign plan. Judas's apostasy could not inhibit God's purposes in Christ. You see, it wasn't as if God had thought to himself when Judas now betrayed Jesus into the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and so forth. It wasn't as if God then thought, my word, what am I going to do now? No, this was all a part of God's plan, including Judas's apostasy. One commentator says this is a terrifying realization. I would add to that, indeed, it is terrifying, a comforting realization. 
that not even the wickedness of humanity falls outside of the sovereign, comprehensively sovereign and good plan of God in Christ. God is mysteriously able and does use our own failures to bring about his good purposes in the end. That's wonderful news. Mysterious news, indeed. God is not human. He's not limited in ways we are limited. He's not finite. This troubles some people because, of course, they can only think in terms of what it means to be a finite human being. If Scripture teaches us anything, it's that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As heaven is higher than earth, so his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And here, perhaps the most egregious sin ever committed, the betrayal of the incarnate Son of God, that sin falls right in the middle of God's sovereign plan. And Luke wants us to see this. Then in verse 20, we receive these actual Old Testament texts to which Peter points us. And these texts are demonstrations that this was all part of God's plan all along. How do we know this is part of God's plan? Because he prophesied this. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through David. And here are some of the locations where the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. Again, indicating God's judgment. No one's left to dwell in this camp. It's run down, it's dilapidated. It's no longer useful. And let another take his office from Psalm 109. So we're going to likely make more of this as we move through Acts, but I want you to pay attention to how the apostles interpret Old Testament texts. Acts does not merely teach us what a quoted text means in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. It does teach us that, okay? But I think it's more than that. I think the book of Acts actually teaches us how to read Scripture Christianly. We recently had the privilege of walking through Deuteronomy. I had the privilege of preaching through Deuteronomy. And it was, a, it was a challenging, challenging sermon series for me. Rewarding, but challenging. One of my ambitions as I preached through the book of Deuteronomy was to preach the text Christianly, faithfully, in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, fulfilled and summed up in Christ's incarnation, in Christ's life, in Christ's death, in Christ's burial, in Christ's resurrection, in Christ's ascension, and in Christ's promised future return. The Deuteronomy was actually a book written not even fundamentally by Moses, but by the Holy Spirit about the coming Christ and the fulfillment of all things in him and the way in which all of those things then get extended to us as believers in Jesus Christ. And so I think in Acts, and we're going to do this a number of times, again, this is a part of that, don't get too far into this, um, because we'll see it many times here, but I think in the book of Acts, we are receiving more than simply an explanation of one text. We are actually observing what I would call the apostolic hermeneutic the way of reading the Bible like the apostles. Because, of course, they were taught how to read the Bible. According to Luke, in Luke 24, who taught them? The Lord Jesus. And so we're going to see that throughout Acts. In Luke 24, Jesus teaches the disciples how to read the Bible. The book of Acts is a demonstration of what the Lord taught them concerning how to read the Bible through the coming of Christ. We're going to get to that, and I'm going to stop myself there. But we'll see more of that as we move through the book of Acts together. So in Psalm 69, the one who opposed God's king would be left desolate. Psalm 109, more detail is given about a replacement for this one who would betray God's king, God's anointed one. 
God's Messiah. This is all fulfilled through Judas. And we said this a moment ago, but I think it's worth repeating here. This is central to what Luke wants us to get. This is central to what the Spirit of God is communicating through Luke. Not even the most egregious of sins falls outside of the comprehensive sovereignty of God. Not even Judas's apostasy could derail the purposes of God. In fact, rather than inhibiting and preventing God's plan, Judas's apostasy was a part of it. This is not to suggest that Judas was somehow not responsible or not culpable for his actions. Judas was responsible. He made choices. Judas was guilty. He was culpable for these choices. However, nothing that Judas chose to do was outside God's comprehensively sovereign plan. The two exist together. And we're going to see this, by the way, in Acts 2, and we're going to see it again in Acts 4. We'll get there eventually. So what does this mean for us this morning? A lot of detail about this, and then we're going to move on to our third heading. What does this mean for us this morning? It means, it means that as Christians, we are learning to view the challenges and suffering of life through the lens of the comprehensive sovereignty of God. It means that whatever we are facing, whatever you are facing, dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, or whatever you will face, During those challenges, you can trust the goodness and power of our Father to accomplish His kind intentions for us. If the betrayal and the suffering and the death of Christ were central to God's plan, how much more the various losses we endure? How much more? How much more the moment when, when the doctor comes into the room and instead of sharing with us, God answered your prayer, you don't have cancer. Instead of saying that, he says to us those words that none of us ever want to hear about ourselves or a loved one. I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer. And in that moment, in that moment, it is the cross that teaches us how to view cancer. It's the betrayal of Christ and the suffering of Christ that teaches us how to interpret our circumstances. In that moment, or maybe at a later moment, I think for me, probably a later moment. But at some point, by God's grace, we are empowered not to say that cancer is good, not to say that Judas' apostasy was good, but to say that there is a good and sovereign God whom I call Father, who is capable, and not merely capable, but who does use every moment of suffering in this life for my eternal good. That's the lens that the Spirit of God is giving us in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. This is the lens through which the Apostle Paul viewed his circumstances. This is why the Apostle Paul is able to write in Romans 8, 28, we know, right? Not we think, not we hope. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God uses your sickness, dear saint, for your good. God uses harmful relationships, broken relationships, dear brother, dear sister, for your good. He uses the emotional and agonizing pain 
you have had to endure, or perhaps will have to endure, for your good. He uses cancer for your good. To steal a title from a book written some time ago in a different context. If your God is not able to use these things underneath his comprehensively sovereign plan for your good, your God is too small. Embrace the God of the Bible who calls you to a life of comfort, not with the exception of suffering, but through it, and then empowers you to endure it with Christ in full view, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what it means to view all of the struggles of life like a Christian. This doesn't take away, it does not take away the pain. It is interesting to me that in Scripture, Isaiah and Revelation, God doesn't always describe the comfort that we will receive on that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ returns and everything gets made new. Lord, haste that day. God doesn't always describe that day as there will be no weeping, although that is a description that occurs at times. But he often describes that day as in that day, God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In my mind, indicating the presence of loss, but the eclipsing glory and comfort of Christ. And so this does mean that life will hurt sometimes. We will weep. Christ himself wept as the human in John 11. But it does remind us that there is not a single jot of our suffering in this life over which our good father is not sovereign and through which he is not working for our good. I would be, I would be remiss at this point as we talk about a Christian view of suffering from Acts chapter one underneath the sovereign plan of God, I would be remiss if I didn't, I didn't plead with those of you in the room who haven't embraced Jesus Christ in faith to do that. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or, or maybe, maybe you have trusted in a Christ, but it's not the Christ we're talking about. Or maybe you've trusted in a God, but it's not the God that we find on the pages of Scripture or in the pages of Scripture. I would plead with you this morning that embrace Christ, surrender to Christ, place your hope and your peace and your confidence and your perseverance and your strength, all of that, place it in Christ. Recognize that he has everything you need, that he died in your place and for your sins. He was buried, that is, He went all the way through the process. He was raised from the dead in glorious power on the third day. He appeared to many, including right here in Acts 1. He ascended into heaven, indicating, of course, that he had succeeded. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, which is a way of saying he's he's taken his position on the throne as king in the place of honor waiting and praying, waiting for the day when he returns and wraps all this up in himself, abolishing all pain, all suffering, and so on and so forth, praying for his people. If you've not embraced this Jesus, then do that this morning. And if you'd like to talk more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ or to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. We would love to visit with you afterward. You can stay after as you walk out one of these doors, take a left-hand side in that room I mentioned earlier called the Crossroads. On the right-hand side out there before you leave this building, go in there and there will be an elder in there who would love to visit with you about what it means to come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to treasure this Savior who does not promise a life free from suffering. 
but has conquered suffering by suffering. And promises, promises a day when all of your suffering will finally be eclipsed when he returns. Finally, we do need to get to this. We're running out of time, but not out of text yet, so let's do a bit more. In addition to the anticipation of the disciples and the apostasy of Judas, briefly, let's look at the appointment of Matthias. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and went in and out among us. This is the apostles talking. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John, that is to say, by the way, maybe, maybe this is a reference to John baptizing Jesus, but it may be a reference broadly to the ministry of John the Baptist. It's difficult to know. But beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, that is, Jesus ascended into heaven, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Judas, Judas needs to be replaced. The apostasy of Judas fell underneath the comprehensively sovereign plan of God. Now the replacement of Judas will fall underneath the comprehensively sovereign plan of God. Verses 23 through 26. We're going to probably read these verses more than comment on them. Look at verse 23 with me. And they put forward two, two men. That is, these two men were with the apostles from the beginning, throughout the ministry of Jesus. And the two men were, one, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, has a few names, which wasn't uncommon, by the way, in the ancient world. And Matthias, verse 24. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all. The word there in the Greek, by the way, is heart knower. It's one word. You, Lord, are the heart knower of all people. Show which one of these two you've chosen, verse 25, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. Now, this is important. This is going to be an apostle from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, verse 26. So they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. What does it mean to cast lots? Well, a couple of ways you could have done this in the ancient world, but it's, it's similar to uh, drawing straws, rolling the dice. Interesting, isn't it? And by the way, this is, this is not a prescription for how we select church leaders. There are, there are parts of the book of Acts that, that are more descriptive than prescriptive, and this is one of them. I put this in that category. But, they, but the, don't miss this. The apostles are praying and they know, the Lord knows which man needs to serve as the 12th apostle. And they aren't playing fast and loose with this immense responsibility when they cast lots. Here's what they're doing. They know, according to Proverbs 16, verse 33, that the lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The comprehensively sovereign plan of God. So the Lord in his kindness led them at this point, look, you're not making the decision, just cast lots, I'll lead. They cast lots and they trusted in their sovereign God to direct what appears to be a coincidence but what in fact was the unfolding of God's plan in the selection of Matthias, the extension of the kingdom, and the growth of the church, as we're going to see in Acts. Well, we're going to wrap up a bit more abruptly. I joke with our pastors about not performing a perpendicular landing in a sermon. You want to land smoothly. This is a bit more perpendicular, but hopefully we'll level it out here. One of the great English hymn writers of the 18th century, which by the way, the 18th century was the era for hymns. My opinion. Who am I? But I love love so many of the 18th century hymns. But one of the great English hymn writers in this era was William Cooper. And among his many profound hymns, 
was God moves in a mysterious way. Some of you perhaps have heard this sung, others of you maybe haven't sung this before. And in this hymn, Cooper engaged both the terrifying and comforting doctrine of God's comprehensive sovereignty. That's what the hymn is about. Cooper understood it well. Here's what he wrote, and we'll we'll conclude with this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then finally, as a tremendous reminder, church family, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning for your word in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Would you continue to empower us by means of the abiding spirit to persevere in faith, hope, and love until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To do so recognizing that everything that materializes in our lives does so underneath the comprehensively sovereign plan of our good and gracious Father. So continue to remind us, O God, today as your people, your children. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory and all God's people said, amen.